For most of us, when we have experienced a breakup, we often don't know what to do to heal our sadness. For a singer-songwriter like Louise Golby, part of her healing process is to write a song and then to build an album around it. She talks with me about her album, Renaissance, and takes us through the step-by-step process of songwriting, recording, producing and promoting the album. Louise also tells me what it's like performing both at intimate gigs in jazz clubs and huge venues like Glastonbury. Welcome to Creative Conversations, Bold Creativity, Smart Action, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring what happens when creativity and action flow together. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. My guest today is singer-songwriter Louise Golby. She is an established artist on the live music scene of London and beyond. She has played at Glastonbury and the Isle of Wight Festival. Louise has supported and shared the stage with Ed Sheeran, Katie B, Paloma Faith, George Benson and Roberta Flack. Her live appearances also include the Jazz Café and the O2 Arena, where she was supporting Cool and the Gang, among other bands. Louise Golby also hosts her own podcast, The Songwriters Podcast. And to start things off, with Louise's permission, here is a snippet from the title song of her recent album, Renaissance. Louise Golby, thank you so much for coming on to the Creative Conversations podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Your latest album, which is called Renaissance, came out recently. What was your inspiration behind it? So the title track, Renaissance, is actually one that I wrote um, when I found myself newly single after a long-term relationship. And it was almost like, a new lease of life like I felt kind of ready to date again and I had a couple of really close friends who became single at the same time similar situation and it was just really nice we just felt really you know had our confidence back and getting lots of attention I mean it's not a particularly deep song but it was kind of I kept saying it's like we're having a renaissance like we're living our 20s again and it was really really fun kind of time so I kind of wrote a, a, a song about that and then I I knew I wanted to do a whole new album because I had lots of other new songs or singles that I'd released just as singles and I I I just liked the title Renaissance. Although I don't know if you know, but Beyonce has copied me since and her new album, which she released after mine, is called Renaissance. So you start with the idea of this song, this one song, and you put together a number of songs. And what Kind of inspired the other songs. Do you do you see it as a concept album? Uh, I guess 
in a sense, it's a concept album because it's all written within the time of breaking up to through the pandemic to when I released it. And so a lot of the, so- the songs really do reflect kind of what was happening in my life and the world. I wrote a couple of songs on the album that were kind of how I was feeling during the pandemic and what was going on in that sense of things in the world. But the rest of it is, yeah, about the breakup and then getting over it. So it's really your personal response to the situations around you. So with all your albums, do you, is it a personal response in terms of the songs that you write? to to what's going on around you you know I work with various musicians but lyrically it's always from me and I I feel weird writing either other sorry singing other people if it's other people's words or stories or singing about something that's not happened to me unless I'm talking in the third person about somebody else for example that's fine but so always throughout my writing it's always kind of stuff that I've been through I try I obviously try to make it accessible so it's not too personal because you want it to still speak to people and you know it's not very specific I hope that kind of right in a way where it can be universal um my so I've actually only released two full albums but I've released several EPs and singles my last album novel was in 2015 and actually although all the songs obviously personal I decided that would actually just be a collection of what I thought was my strongest songs that either I hadn't released yet or they have been released as singles. I just wanted it all as a bit of a, almost like an anthology, is that the word? of like my work so far. That's why I called it the, a novel, my novel. Um, and, it, uh, and then since then I've done EPs, which are like five or six song ones and then a couple of singles. But with the album, that I have a copy here. You know, I always get, when I do an EP or an album, I always get a physical copy done just because it's just nice to have, you know. But with the singles, obviously, they're just digital. So you had a collection of songs uh, in your album called Novel. This one, you said, is more concept album where it's a response to a specific period that yes. we can all relate to. And I think as, as a listener to music, I, I love it when a singer talks about uh, in the song something that's happened to them that, that feels real to them but, uh, that also connects with me as the listener and I can go oh yeah gosh you know I really feel that pain or that sadness or that happiness so that's a wonderful way to create music that connects with other people it's a great privilege to have you know, the original singer-songwriter right there in front of me can you talk us through some of your songs? Maybe pick a, pick a couple and, and, and talk us through the creative process, the story, and um, particularly how you feel that they might relate to each other. So I'd say one of the most, well, they're all personal, but one of the most, the, the sadder of, of the story songs is um, the, one of the ballads on the album called Stay or Go. And musically, I'm very proud of that because I, I do a lot of collaborations, which we'll t- you know probably talk about. But I sat at the piano, and I'm not a very good pianist, but I wrote that song pretty much from scratch myself. You know, the, the chords, the melody, the lyrics, like everything. And it was almost like I was pouring how I was feeling out at the time because it was essentially in that period where I knew we were breaking up and I was kind of, I think we were both in denial, but we'd been having the conversation. So it was quite an emotional time. It's a very sad 
story. And it's, uh, I remember when I first brought this song to the producer that I got to produce it. And I was quite emotional telling him about it because whenever I work with people, they're kind of quite nice to kind of explain where the song comes from in the first place. So they have a better understanding of what it means to me. And I'm really pleased with how it was produced. It was like, you know, it's still quite a simple production, but then it builds and builds at the end. And it actually, it's got these big gospel-y, I love doing harmonies anyway, like one of my favorite things, but it's got these big gospel-y type backing vocals that I did at the end. And it kind of has a little bit of a positive, because it's called Stay or Go. It's like, well, maybe we can make this work because because the rap, you know, the rousing big choruses at the end are quite uplifting. It's It's got a bit of that kind of melancholy edge to it. So you've got these two songs, Stay or Go, which is about the breakup of a relationship, and then Renaissance, which uh, I suppose in time I'm imagining comes after Stay or Go, where you're with your girlfriend's um, singling uh, offbeat. Could you, again, tell us a bit more about the writing of that particular song? So with Renaissance, the irony is, though, I decided that when I was deciding the order of the album, Renaissance actually is the opening track. And I ummed and ahmed for ages, like how. And then I realized that on digital platforms, people don't even necessarily listen to it in an order. But it felt right to have that as the first track. So even though, yes, you're right, chronologically, it was after the break. <laughs> but yes, so musically with that song, um, when I wrote that piano as well, and it, I had this kind of reggae feel about the way I was singing the melody. And I sung just the a cappella of the melody to a friend of mine who said, Do you know what? There's an Aswad song which would sound really good underneath that. Like, and he played it to me. And it's an instrumental called Warrior Charge. And it was out in 1981. And it was on the soundtrack to this film called Babylon, which was quite a big film at the time, like culturally quite important. Um, about South London and reggae and anyway I heard the song and then when I brought that song to the producer we tried it we had to change the key and speed it up uh, but it worked really well but then I had to get permission from the label and basically you know get the sample cleared uh, but actually on Friday the lead singer of Aswad passed away so it's I feel really honoured that I've even because i did a gig with them, but I feel really honoured that I have met him and that I, you know, using one of his band's tracks on my album because he was, you know, as well, quite important in the UK reggae scene. What an amazing connection in terms of the creative process. Um, can I ask you to take us through a bit more slowly the step by step of actually writing the song? Because I'm a writer, I deal with books, novels, words. And I had no musical knowledge at all. Um, and I had piano lessons when I was a child that just could not get on. So, so the, the putting together of music and, and words, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. So in terms of those two songs, did the music come first? Did uh, you know, the melody uh, or did the words come first? Or did they just hear in you and then you just had to write it down? Well, I'd say every song has a different process like I don't necessarily have a a go-to method um with stale go I think I came up with the piano riff first 
which is like in between, it's like the intro riff and in between the verses. Um, and I actually, I feel like I probably did write some basic lyrics down. And that's, and often with lyrics, they just come more almost in the form of poetry. When I've got something in my head, maybe it's just a little phrase or a couple of ideas. You know, I write them down, I almost put them in poetry form. But with this one, I think I had an idea and then just was humming the melody as I was playing and then thought, oh, these lyrics kind of would work. And then I adapted the lyrics and kind of were changing the phrasing of it that I went. And, but it, I have to say that that song came quite quickly, whereas others, you know, you can spend weeks, months kind of going back and forth. But sometimes they're, I think sometimes the best songs are the ones that just just appear. Well, they don't appear, but they're just, they're, they, they're quick to fall. Um, Renee's songs, I definitely wrote the lyric first and then um, wrote the, the chords. But with other songs, I have, and a couple of the songs on the album, like Roll the Credits, the producer, James, he sent me an instrumental that he'd produced, which was just a loop. And I wrote the melody and lyrics on top of his instrumentation. And that's another great way of working. But then him, him my, me and him, him and I, <laughs> have also written songs just with his, him on his guitar. It's, it's different every time, I'd say. Which is good, in a way. <laughs> and so, now you've written the first draft. Can you tell us what is the creative process that gets it from the first draft to the final version in the album? Uh, so, for example, Don't Feel Good, which actually is one of the ones that I wrote about the pandemic. That was one that I had worked on it with the producer, Gareth, and we kind of developed that one together. And it was, he already had ideas for production, but then we got another person to come and play guitar on it. And then we developed it together in the studio, just made it sound fuller. And we kind of changed some of the parts to make them, there'd be like a breakdown bit. And then I recorded all the vocals in the studio. And then he spends quite a lot of time mixing it. And because Gareth mixed the whole album, it's important that the album's consistent with the sound so that, you know, all the vocals are at the same level, the way things are panned, you know, left and right. And because there's several different producers on the track, he also is, it was his job to make sure that everything made sense sonically, even though certain producers have their own sound. So... That's quite important. And then the final stage of it all is actually getting it mastered, which is when you just have it so everything's at the right quality for radio, digital, CD format. And then someone else does that. And it's, well, it's always quite important, I think, to have someone else doing that who's got a different ear, who's not listening to all the songs, but just hearing it as one product. And so I'm picturing you in the studio with your producer and uh, someone playing the guitar. Do you have other musicians join you as well and background singers for for the gospel-y bits that you mentioned? I actually do my own backing vocals. I would, I mean, it is nice actually when you hear recordings and you've got the different voice tones 
because I love doing harmonies so much, I just I just get such a buzz out of like sometimes when you're doing like big uh, harmonies and lots of different vocals. Sometimes I'm like, there's one more harmony. I know there's another one in me, and then when I find it, it's like the missing link. It's I just love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, I think if I had a big budget, I would of course had a whole gospel. So that to me is amazing that you're harmonizing with yourself. Mm. And again, because I'm not very musical, do you have a melody, you sing that, and then you almost improvise a kind of matching harmony? How, how does it work? Well, often there's like obvious ones. You call it like the third above or the third below. But yeah, it's once I've recorded the lead vocals, we don't, I don't do any backing vocals until the lead is, is set in stone. Sometimes I quite like songs where there's actually, we call it counter melodies, where you've got the, the main melody line and then stuff happening kind of in between. Sometimes it's literally just oohs or ahs, which give it a bit of warmth and extra. It's almost like an extra instrument when you have layers of harmonies. Well, it's wonderful. I, I'm going to listen to your album again and this time pay attention to the fact you voices. When you're listening and you're getting to the groove of the song and it's all this sort of soundscape, but you don't really break it down as a general listener to individual bits of it. So I really do that and, and, okay. and listen, listen out for you. It's always good to do, if you're doing a harmony line, to do it twice so you have one on the left and one on the right. So that it feels like there's more people and it feels suspense more. Again, as, as a writer, uh, it's just me. I sit down and I write my words. Um, and if I, if I have a feeling inside me that I need to make it more ominous, I find my own words and I write it in the ominous, using very sinister words and all that. Or I want it to be vibrant, I use different words. So when you're working you know, with music um, and you're with a producer and, and other people, how do you communicate with each other when you want something? How do you express that so that you, you get that sound from the producer and vice versa? I think, to be honest, a lot of it's to do with the fact that I've been recording and writing for a long time now. So I'm more confident being able to say to someone, I'm not quite sure about that sound. Could you try something like this? And even if I don't know the lingo, I, I feel like I've musically my you know i'm not classically trained or anything but i know when something i either know when something sounds a bit off like if something's off key or um slightly wrong or the wrong note but also from a production point of view i'm very much kind of i like to call myself an executive producer i'm not pressing the buttons but i'm i'm making decisions and there's some producers that i really trust what they do and i could just send them the song and go do what you want with it but at the same time, I do like to be involved in that. And yeah, Animal, for example, uh, Lyndon Grant, who produced Renaissance, actually, he produced Animal. And the first draft that he did, because I did send him the vocals and he worked on it because we were working remotely at that point during the lockdown, so we couldn't be in the same room. And his first version of it, I wasn't too keen on some of the sounds he used. And they almost sounded too electronic for me and I wanted a bit more of the live element so it would fit in with the other stuff. So there was a bit of back and forth with that, but he trusted me, I trusted him and we we communicated and it. I'm so happy with the result, you know, and so is he. 
Yeah. And then you mentioned that at the end of the process, you bring someone in with fresh ears to listen to the whole album. Can you talk about that, that process? So the person that masters the album doesn't necessarily make any decisions on the album, but it's more that he'll be able to tweak things that Gareth might have missed or got so used to because he's heard it a million times. Um, but we did definitely play the songs to a couple of other people when we were deciding on the order. Because although, as I'm saying before, generally when people listen digitally, it might be on a random shuffle. But at the same time, I was getting the CD copies done. For me, I wanted it to make sense. I didn't want the slow songs all together. I wanted a bit of variation. I knew I wanted 12 tracks because for some reason I didn't want the unlucky number of 13. So I had to make a decision to cut a song which I thought was going to be on the album but I did release it as a single and I thought well do you know what it is out there so it's not like people can't find it and I did promote it at the time so maybe it's not part of this project it's there and also just hearing people's opinions and it's quite to be honest when we're kind of at the final stages you obviously don't want someone to be like no nah, I don't like that song because it's like well it's too late nah. <laughs> well, do you record do do all of this uh, the collaborative bit, and then you set aside a period at the end, and you record the whole lot, or do you record as you go, as you finish working collaboratively on each song? Each song, yeah. But the mixing part of it, we did at the same time. Well, he's the producers mix it as you go. Obviously, you've got a basic thing, but once we had all of the stuff recorded and vocals recorded, we then went through with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that nothing was out of place. But each song kind of treated separately. And some took long, more studio sessions than others. And others, I mean, Lost Nor Found, basically, is kind of recorded acoustically. So it's recorded live, but then we added extra elements in afterwards. And yeah. So you've now got everything together. You've got an album. Uh, what happens next to actually put everything else in place that you need to get it out there for the general public? Um, so obviously, album cover is important, whether it be for digital or physical. And I'd had a photo shoot the year before and I'm with the intention of trying to get some shots that might be used for an album when I was going to be doing it. Um, so I was really pleased with what came out of the photo shoot as well and got someone to design the cover for me. There's a lot of people involved. Um, and then obviously there's the promotion side of things. And I, I'm an independent artist, so I don't have a big PR budget, but I used um, a company to distribute the album online and they offered for an extra, I can't remember how much it was, but like a promo package you could get. So I decided to opt for that and they got me a few online things and they created some social media posts and adverts for me. I also had a really close friend who, out of the kindness, kindness of his heart, just wanted to help me. And he's from Poland and he basically contacted loads of radio stations and magazines in Poland. And just was completely bigging me up the whole time. And 
you know, he's done so much. It's great. The promo obviously is the important thing because obviously you make the thing and then you've got to tell people about it. And I did an album launch as well. So I did a live album launch at Pizza Express, um, which was great because it was so nice to perform songs live, celebrate it. It felt like a big achievement. Sold some CDs and also had a video videographer. So we've got I've got some really nice footage of of the live versions as well, which is also nice. So I'm kind of putting that out on YouTube every now and again. And the thing is, when something's out, you have that big rush and then it kind of all fizzles out. So I wanted, I'm just constantly trying to think of new ways. And actually, when Beyonce announced her her one, I was like, oh, I can jump on this and talk about my album again. So thank you, Beyonce. Thank you, Beyonce. And how does it work these days in terms of streaming, getting it on Spotify and Amazon Music and all that side of things? So that there's quite a lot of companies that have been around for a while, actually, that distribute music. But technically, anyone could record anything and release it online. <laughs> I mean, yeah, anyone can. Um, but what, yeah, all, what they do is they act as an you know, administrative platform where they basically put your stuff out on all the platforms. You can decide if you don't want it on a particular one for whatever reason. You can decide what price the download would be if people actually are buying it. Some of them take a percentage, some of them just charge a one-off fee for that release. Obviously, record labels have the extra budget. And I wish I had Beyonce's PR budget because... Um... <laughs> and then the CDs, I... Just have there's a company that I've used over the years, and I send them all the music. I send them the artwork. Tell them what design of of, of the CD I want, because you can have a book there. You can have them in different ways. But the other good thing about having the actual physical one is all of the credit. I've got all the writers, producers, musicians. It's nice to have that. Whereas on online, people don't know who wrote the song or who's playing the songs. Yes, that reminds me of I grew up in the days of finals and having the big albums with, the, particularly when you could open it, it was double sided and you could read all that information and also a bit about the band or the singer. And all sort of felt somehow you were holding your great idol in your hand. Yeah. And uh, there was a kind of intimacy about it as you listen to music and you open the big the vinyl sleeve. And the CDs then, then came along and they were smaller, but and also because they were smaller, you get a sense a slight distance. And then now there's nothing. No, there's nothing. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? I really want to get mine put onto vinyl, but it's very it's actually very expensive. And I think unless you're gonna sell thousands. They're really expensive. What do you know about the um, uh, renaissance of vinyl? Because at one point, yes. I, I mean, I threw out all my vinyl. I was like, oh my goodness, I oh, no. shouldn't have done that. But do you have a record player still? Maybe you should find uh, No, threw, threw that out. Uh, and so, you know, one has to buy all the, all the new kit as well. So let's move on to uh, performing. You have appeared at Glastonbury and also the O2 Arena, which are huge venues. But you also play more intimate gigs like the Jazz Cafe. So what's it like playing in these different venues? And what do you need to do to modulate your performance so that you're fitting with the spaces? 
Funnily enough, Facebook reminded me that it was two years today that I did the O2 gig because it was before wow. the pandemic. And um, I'm just really glad that gig happened when it did because I, because it was like a one-off soul festival. I don't think it would have then got rescheduled, you know, when everything's getting cancelled. So, so grateful. I generally still get nervous before gigs. And I think, you know, it's that kind of good nerves, adrenaline type thing. And I never want to get complacent, you know, even if, like I, I love playing at Jazz Cafe. And I remember the very first time I performed there, it was a big milestone because especially from the music I make, and now I've played there loads and I don't want it to feel like I'm taking it for granted because I'm still really grateful when I get asked to, I recently supported um, Evelyn King there. And, you know, I've done some, quite a big, lot of supports, lots there, Royers, Omar, Heatwave. And especially when I'm, as a support artist, there's even more, pre- there's kind of more pressure because they're not there to see me. They're there to see Heatwave. And I've got to like basically warm them up and win them over. So it's a kind of, it's an honor, but it's also quite a scary honor to, to do that. But it's, it's great. And obviously it's good for, for me because you kind of, getting new fans essentially you're getting their fans hopefully to like you as well and then follow you O2 probably the most nervous I've ever been and because we were on the you know they had like oh cool and the gang were headlining and they had massive bands so by the time we were supposed to be sound checking we barely got five minutes to sound check and I was like oh my god this is the biggest gig of my life of we're not getting a sound check this is really making me more nervous but obviously the sound people know what they're doing and obviously the headliners got priority but that made me more nervous um but it went well and I was just buzzing I mean what an opportunity I just was like right well we're gonna nail this you know I had my best my best musicians with me and we know the staff we were only given I think 20 minutes so we I was really strict with like because I often end up talking rubbish in between songs or with witty banter. But I was like, right, I had to plan exactly what I was saying, make sure we got the songs and not like went over time because they were very strict with them. I was literally right. As soon as they mention my note, play the song. I'm going to go on. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I do. I do covers gigs as well. We do like really intimate venues. I did a completely unplugged um acoustic gig just after my album came out in a tiny venue so no amplification everyone was just sat on the floor around us and it was actually really lovely because we played the album just me and my guitarist and it's a good it's also a good test of whether the songs just work just with bare bone because obviously they're all you know as we were talking about before the production side of things there's a lot that goes into the actual recording you and i have known each other for Oh, 10 years plus plus, I think. And I moved to Oxford and we bumped into each other again. It's visible in January this year. You've played in the sort of chill out room, which was really mellow, this wonderful room, bean bags, and you really held the room. And what I noticed in this small setting was that you bounced off the audience. You really took the energy from them, gave back, and it was like a dance, uh, the way that you chose your music, the way that you connected with all the different audience members with a cheeky smile sometimes a bit spooky sexy other times it was just a wonderful wonderful energy that you had when you're performing thank you i 
I really enjoyed that performance. Also, I was standing in for another singer. So it's quite funny, wasn't it, that we saw each other there? Yes. Because I literally, I think I said yes to the gig the night before. And the guitarist, Chris, is amazing. So we didn't, don't know if you know this, but we'd never played together before. We met on the gig because I was covering oh. for the other singer who was booked with him. And, you know, we kind of sent each other set lists of songs we knew. So, and b- because we're both gigging musicians, we had enough songs between us that we knew we could do. But what was lovely, as soon as we started playing, we realized how each other kind of worked. And then, like you said, we were feeding off the audience. That I think there were a couple of requests. And it is really nice. You definitely feel that energy because when you know people are listening and and appreciate it it definitely gives you more yeah because you know there are gigs obviously where you can see people having conversations in front of you or hit we can hear them and you can see people aren't quite engaging and it's hard to like try and ignore that but sometimes it does put you off and it does affect whether you enjoy the performance or not and the same with the sound to be honest like you could be performing, you know, I could have a really good audience and be performing well, but the sound might be awful because sometimes things go wrong or the sound person doesn't know what they're doing or whatever, where you can't hear yourself properly. And that's, I can't enjoy a gig if I can't, if the sound's not good either. So how do you handle that? How do you handle those difficult situations to make the most of it? Sometimes it's literally just like the way the room's acoustics are. Sometimes things can just be really bad you know if it's not purpose-built venue or the worst sometimes if the sound not good you don't want to be forcing your voice or shouting or you know straining that can be bad it's interesting again for me to, to hear about this because you're not just having this connection with the audience and chris by the way the chemistry between you guys it was just amazing i would never have known that you've never worked together when you just met so you've got that relationship and the audience and then you actually got the relationship with the room and the tech. And I suppose um, if the tech isn't very good and you've got a lads and girl amplified, then you get me and it kind of morphs or whatever that phrase is. Um, you've got to try and do something yourself to, because you can't change the room. You perhaps can't change the electronics. Definitely. This thing, the more experience you have in various different venues and settings, hopefully the more easy it is to handle it you know you, you have to get on with it and you have to be as professional as possible I mean with Chris it, it's nice that you said that about the bond we had because I think part of it was the fact that we just met uh we because we, he drove there we had this long well it wasn't that long but we had a longest drive together where we were like chatting and getting on really well and then we did the gig and we we're like oh this is really fun because it's nice because we're doing songs we both know but we it's you know, I do a lot of covers gigs where if I'm working with the same musicians, you're just going through the motions. Whereas sometimes doing one of those songs with a different guitarist who plays them differently, I think we were both just enjoying that element. Like it's the same old songs, but slightly different with a different dynamic. And I knew some songs that he doesn't do with other singers that we tried. And yeah, it was nice. It's really nice. So, so looking back at your career and how now you've are so experienced and polished and you know what you're doing. You can handle the audience and play the note. Can you just take us back to maybe the first few times when you think thought to yourself, oh, gosh, I really want to be a singer-songwriter and oh, how do I do this in your first few gigs? What was that like? 
when I was growing up, I did a lot of singing and dancing. I used to do quite a lot of musical theatre and I actually really wanted to go to stage school and thought that was kind of my calling. Um, and I did try. Like I think that my parents couldn't afford to send me to drama school, but also I was at quite a good school and I think they wanted me to stay and do you know, my A-levels and all that and then go to university. But at university and all throughout school, I just did all the shows. So I just was doing as much as possible. Um, I started, and I was obviously, I was doing some piano lessons, but I started writing some songs probably in my teens, late teens. And I played a song to my friend Zoe, who I've known since we were two. And she was like, Louise, I'm really good at this. Like, I do think this, you should do this. And, you know, she's so loved, you know, I've known her all my life, so she's very honest with me. I was like, really? Because it's quite nerve-wracking playing anyone I still find it nerve-wracking playing someone a song the first time even though I've been writing songs for years now I still you know you don't know if a song's good until someone else hears it and tells you oh yeah that's a good idea I mean I don't know whether people would actually say that to your face but (laughs) um anyway she kind of put the idea in my head and then I ended up meeting other musicians and kind of doing a bit of writing with them and then when I was at uni I wrote a bit more and a friend of mine who played guitar when I moved into London after uni, he, I wrote a couple of songs and he learned them for me. And another friend of mine used to put on this night, uh, which was for poets, um, actors, singers, basically like you've got a 15 minute chant of comedians to do like a little showcase and it, but they want, they wanted original material. And I had done a cover set when people were arriving and my friend Ria, who ran the night, she said, I really want you to do the main show, but do you have any of your own stuff? And I was like, well, I have, but I've never done it in front of anyone. And then, sorry, and that's when I got James involved, different day. And we did, I think we did two of my own songs in the cover and it was in this theatre in North London and people really liked the songs. And I was like, oh. So then, you know, being in London, there's so many nights where you can gig and open mic nights. So we basically did lots of stuff and that's how I kind of got onto the live scene and then it all developed from there. But I'm really grateful to my two friends who, you know, Zoe in the first sense, but also Ria, if she hadn't have got me to do that 15 minute slot at her night, when would I have ever had, had the... Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So if you, um, thinking back to that young girl that you were, well, what would she think of where you've got to now? I think, yeah, I think she'd be really proud and also quite shocked that I'm still doing it. <laughs> uh, plenty of creative friends over the years who were going to do acting, were going to do dancing, musical theatre, doing what I do and have given up. and. I'm, I don't know, it's obviously a very up and down business and the lockdown especially made me question everything. <laughs> Why have I made these life choices? I've really, you know, really messed things up. I can't believe, but actually all of my achievements and every time I do a gig and I have a, you know, great response to my music or I still get a buzz from performing. I still love recording. I still love writing. I don't, I think those and all the achievements make me carry on. And obviously, if I hadn't have had those 
things come to me, maybe I would have given up. But I feel like a lot of good stuff's happened. Well, I, I think like creative industries, it's very, very hard for writers, musicians, poets, yeah. and just about everybody else. Because it is up and down, and it's uh, because you, as a creative person, you've got that creative, sensitive side, not necessarily the business side. And you seem to have managed to to bring those two together, and also a persistence kind of right. You can try this one more time, and maybe, and then it happens. Otherwise, maybe if you tried it and it didn't work, that might have been the point that some people might go, "Okay, you know what? I've tried the best, and yeah. it's too hard." But it sounds like you've got the passion, the drive, the talent, the business sense, and the sense of humor to, to keep going. You know, I want to just pick up on, on the point you made a bit earlier about um, the kind of self-doubt creeping in. And again, I think I, that resonates with me because uh, creative people has that. Maybe that's part of uh, the job description, writer and self-doubt. Because of that, sense of, that, that sort of sensitivity. I, I, I think... The, the point that you make that maybe from outside people see you differently. Uh, and, and I think that's true because I see, because we met years ago when you were just starting out. And I see, oh my goodness, over the years, Louise has done incredible work and she's played at Glastonbury and O2, the Jazz Cafe, all these iconic spaces. And you're producing your own work, you're writing your own work. You have your following. People love your music, your songs that came out of your head, that came out of a heartache, a heartbreak a renaissance and that's all you and I think that that is wonderful and I have absolutely in all oh thank you so much so what next for you creatively so one of the tracks I give in easy actually features a Canadian rapper Dio Gibson so we're going to do like a remote video where he's going to fill his parts his parts of the song um in Toronto send them to me and I'm going to kind of edit it all together so I want to kind of push that I will I want to book some more gigs in to promote the album. But I have been approached to do other collaborations and I'm writing a song with another singer, a friend of mine called Jules Strickland, who's just moved back to Australia, but we're kind of working on a duet with a, a mutual friend who's a producer. But from a kind of a release point of view, I don't want to, I want to kind of concentrate on the album. I did release a remix of the title track. Um, and it's a, a dub remix of Renaissance because this producer who's won Grammys, he's like a dub and reggae producer, actually approached me about doing the remix. So he did that and I released it uh, the weekend just before Carnival. And I contacted a few of the DJs that were playing and hopefully someone played it there and got a bit of radio playing. So we'll see. So now, Louise, you also have a podcast. Can you tell us about that? I do. It's called the Songwriters Podcast, and it's actually in association in association with PRS for Music, which is the big royalty collection society in the UK, and the Ivan Novello Awards, um, which obviously celebrates songwriters. And basically, I work with a friend of mine called Bernard, who's got this production company called Unedited, who have done really well, and they've won awards for podcast production. We started it just before lockdown because our very first guest we actually interviewed in person and then we started doing remote ones. And the idea is, the concept is basically I'm interviewing top songwriters, UK songwriters, who you might not know their name, but they're behind songs that you would have heard of. 
So in the first, we've done two series now and we are working on a third one. For example, in the first series, we've got Rob Davis, who he was actually in the band called Mud in the 70s, but he wasn't the lead singer. But he wrote, he co-wrote Kylie's Can't Get You Out of My Head and several other big songs in that era. So it talks about how that song came about. And it's great because I'm just talking to them about their careers and their songwriting techniques and all these kind of stories behind these songs. My creative conversation today was with Louise Golby. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. Go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to Creative Conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast and would like to help more people find the show, please tell your friends about it or subscribe or follow the show, or leave a lovely rating or review via your pod listening app. All this lifts the show up the podcast charts. Creative Conversations, Bold Creativity, Smart Action is part of tigerspirit.co.uk. You can find the podcast by going to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and clicking through to Creative Conversations. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.